In June 1967, between 400 and 700 million people around the world watched the first live international satellite broadcast. It was called Our World, and it was a concert. It featured bands from 19 different countries, and that two-and-a-half-hour event was the largest television event to history in that moment. The global concert, however, was best known because of one band and one song. I'm not going to ask you if you know it because it will reveal your age, but the band was the Beatles and the song was All You Need Is Love. The song was designed to be a simple but memorable message, one that can be embraced by everyone. Here's the refrain. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. The Beatles were really creative. Love, <laughs> love is all you need. Now, the, the, the message is simple, it was repetitive, and yet it, the song took the world by storm. The thing was, though, is it wasn't just a global musical hit. All You Need Is Love became the theme for what was known as the Flower Power Movement and the growing protest against the Vietnam War in the late 60s and early 70s. The message of the song and the movement that it inspired was simple, it was memorable, and it was compelling. All you need is love. And while the song and the movement oversimplified the message of love into sort of an individualistic and candidly a bit of a narcissistic mantra, the central idea of the importance of love was undeniable. And when you think about that central idea of love, I think that God designed love to be that way. But not in the way that the Beatles had in mind. After all, I trust that you know that love is God's idea. 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. John 3 tells us that God so loved the world. Jesus commanded his disciples in John 13 to love one another. Love is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church in Ephesians chapter five. Love is how we, are, how we are to relate to God. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's how we are to respond to one another. We're to love each other as we love ourselves. In 1 John 4, what we find is this, that love is a vital part, even an essential part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And for that matter, it is a vital means of demonstrating that you're a legit follower of Jesus. More than just some emotion, more than something that makes the world go round, love is the central characteristic of those who know God. Christianity and love were meant to go together. So much so that John uses this as yet another example of something that Christians need to consider as a part of their lives in light of the gospel for them to know that what they believe is really true. So today I want to walk you through verses 7 through 12 of 1 John 4, two very simple points that we are to love because God loved us, that we are to love because God lives in us. 
So we're going to walk through these two points and then draw some conclusions at the end. And what I hope to be able to show you is why something that you probably assumed was important, love, is something that all of us need to embrace if you're a follower of Jesus in a new level and maybe even today. So first, we're to love, you're to love, because God loved you. What John does in verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 is to link the priority of love with the way in which God has loved you. The kind of love for others that validates our love for God flows from the way that God has loved us. Or, in other words, to put it this way, if you've experienced the love of God, then you will love others. It's as simple as that. Now John begins in verse seven with the word beloved. He says, beloved, let us love one another. So he puts a command, let us love one another, but before he does that, he uses the word beloved. This is the fifth time in John's book where he addresses his audience with this word beloved. And he does this not only to mark a new subject that he's going to be talking about, but he also does this in a way to communicate warmth and affection to some people to whom he is writing that he has to deliver some pretty direct words to. So he writes this way because he's going to be pointed. And John knows something that we all need to be, to be reminded about, and that is this, that pointed words must come from soft hearts. It's unloving not to be direct at times, but in your directness and in your clarity, it needs to come from a soft heart. So he starts, beloved, let us love one another. What follows then in verse seven is this command. It goes all the way down to verse 11 where we see the command again, where he says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So I trust that I don't need to convince you about the importance and the centrality of love as it relates to Christianity. Even if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, surely you could agree that Christians should be loving. The issue is not whether or not that's true. The issue is how does that happen in a better way? For example, Imagine that you're going to show up at your mom's house today and there's somebody in the house that you don't appreciate. It's completely theoretical. <laughs> you, you pull up into the driveway and you know inside that house there's a potential for conflict. And yet you know you're supposed to act in a loving way. There's no doubt in your mind as to how you are to act. That's not the question. The question is how do I get there? Or, or maybe you're a mom. And you know that today will be filled with some measure of appreciation, but there will also be some level of disappointment. Because either somebody's just not gonna call or someone's not gonna say thank you, someone's not gonna say I love you. And what do you do and where do you go in order to find the strength to love those who won't even love you? So the question isn't not what we should do, the question is where do you go? What well do you draw from? And John's answer to that in this first section is that we are to draw from the well 
of the way in which God has loved us. He gives five qualifying characteristics of God's love. First, he says love is from God. Beloved, let us love one another, why? Because first, love is from God. The first qualifier is foundational and it's incredibly important. That's why John starts here. He says that love has its source and its root in who God is. So love is tied to the very character of God. God is love. In fact, we see this repeated again in verse eight. He says anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. So he links who God is to this this aspect of love. So God's essence His actions are all tied to love. God defines love. He emulates love. He acts in love. Everything he does is marked by love. And John starts here because understanding love requires that we see the connection between the word love and the very nature of God. They are linked together. Love is from God. Secondly, he says love is the essential result of true conversion. Well, let me put it this way. Real believers in Jesus love. Look at what he says in verse seven. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What John says is that the evidence that you really know who God is, the evidence that you have been born of God, meaning being born again, the evidence that that is true, is that there's love. Now, this does not mean that everyone who loves somebody else is automatically a Christian. Even people who aren't Christians can love other people. Not in the same way that a Christian can, and we'll explain that in a moment. What John is talking about is this, that when the supernatural transformation of the new birth happens, when God by his spirit invades a Christian's heart, when they are converted and become a follower of Jesus, that supernatural transformation and that knowledge of who God is affects how they act as it relates to loving other people. In the same way that love comes from God, it also, love, is evidence that a person has been truly born again and knows God. So the miracle of God-centered love then is the result of the miracle of being born again. They are linked together. So back to the illustration. You pull up into the driveway inside the house of someone that's gonna be hard to love. How do you love them? You remind yourself, I'm a Christian. This is not rocket science. I'm a Christian. I've been loved by Christ. I'm to go in there and I'm to love. Love is an essential result of true conversion. Number three, the absence of love reveals a lack of knowing God. So John does this over and over through his letters. He says something positively and then he says it negatively. He he communicates something and then does the complete opposite in terms of the point in order to make the point very clear. So he reverses the argument in verse eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. John approaches this previous point about validating one's belief in God by now identifying that if a person does not have love in his life or her life, then there is no knowledge of God. 
In other words, listen, if, if there's this consistent pattern in your life where you are not concerned about other people, you just say whatever you want, you just do whatever you want, you have no regard for the feelings of other people, you consistently are not inclined to ask forgiveness if you've done something that is wrong, if you're the kind of person that just thinks about only yourself all the time, the Bible says there is no way that you can be a follower of Jesus. I don't care what you've said or what you've done or what you've decided. Like There is no way because the supernatural transformation of Christ requires And the very character of God demands that love characterize those who name the name of Christ. God is love, and love is so central to who God is and the heart of the gospel that a consistent, loveless life means that you do not know God because love and God are so absolutely linked together. Let me give you an illustration. There are some things in life whose characteristic are so linked to the essence of a thing that they go together. So the characteristic and the thing, they, they're linked. They're almost one in the same. For instance, think of the thing of water and the essence of wetness. They go together. To experience water is to experience wetness. You can't separate. You can't experience water without also experiencing wetness. So when you get in the water, You're gonna get wet because water and wetness are linked. So if a child stands on the edge of a pool and says, Mommy, I wanna swim, but I don't wanna get wet, there's no solution to that conundrum. (laughs) It's either you don't swim and you stay dry or you swim and you get wet, but the swim is to get wet. Negatively, if your son runs in from the outside and he's soaked from head to toe and you ask him what happened, He could say, I don't know, but it had nothing to do with water. You'd be like, you're wet. Water had to be involved because the wetness and the water are one in the same. Wetness is evidence of water because wetness is part of the essence of water. So to love is part of the essence of God. And so what John aims to remind us about is that love And a relationship with God must go together. And this is really important because if we're honest, over time and because of our self-centeredness, we can live as if God and love is not like water and wetness. And we can begin to think, well, I can believe in God, I can believe in the gospel, but I don't necessarily need to live a life that's consistent in terms of loving others and other-centeredness. And John aims to remind us, no, love is essential. Fourth, love was displayed in the gospel. Look at verse nine. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is the verse I want you to hear. Listen to it very carefully, because this this changes even how you understand what you may have even thought of love as before. The Bible says this, in this the love of God was manifest, meaning this is how the love of God is most clearly displayed. Here it is, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. If you boil Christianity down to its most foundational truth, there it is. It is this, God loved the world, sent his only son so we could live. The most poignant example The clearest demonstration was the sending of Jesus to die 
on a cross so that those who would trust in him might be saved. Saved from what? Saved from loving the wrong things. That's the crazy thing, is when you're not a follower of Jesus, you're chasing love in all the wrong places. That's why the Beatles, they got it wrong. It's a good song, but it's wrong. Love is not all you need in terms of how you define that. At the end of the day, what you ultimately need is God to reorder the broken loves of your heart and to give you the forgiveness and cleansing that you so desperately need. Some of you, you're here today, you're exhausted because you've tried to love so many things and found them to be absolutely lacking. And the thing that the Bible says is that at the end of the day, God is able to demonstrate his love toward you and that even while you were still a sinner, even today, Jesus has died for you in order to reorder the wrong loves and send them the right direction. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is how God has loved you. And feeling the weight of this, feeling the beauty of this, not only becomes the means by which you see the world, but it then informs how you live. God calls you to love others because of the way that God has loved you. So you have some people in your life that are hard to love. Some people who's just the, the pain of what they do is just, you feel like you're absorbing it all of the time. Where do you go? Where you go is you go back to the fact that love was displayed most gloriously in the gospel. Finally, number five, love rescued us. Verse 10, and this is love. I love this. And this is love not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John tells us that the love of God was something that came to us undeservedly. It's not as though we set out to love God and then he loved us. No, 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 no. Rather, it's that God loved us even before we loved him. In fact, it gets worse than that or better than that. It is that he sent his son to be the payment for our sins even before we set our love on him and even while we were still his enemies. God ran to those who cursed him. He seeks those who want to reject him. He goes after those whose hearts are set against him. God lovingly provides the means of our salvation way before there was any love in our hearts for God. God loved you way before you ever loved him. And by the way, that's really helpful when you have somebody who's a taker and not a giver in your life. When you have to give and give and give and give and you wonder how many times do I have to take the first step? Where do you go when you have that? You're reminded how many times did God take the first step for you? Oh friends, don't miss this, this critical definition of love because God's love is not a response to our love. His love did not Seek after us because of our love for him. God moved towards us while we were still his enemies. And so as a Christian, part of the strategy of developing a heart that reflects God's love is regularly reminding yourself of the extent of God's love for you. And it's vital and it's important that you do this because our natural tendency, even after conversion, is to base our love upon what we see expressed in other people. We define our love and what we do based upon maybe the home that we were raised in or the friends that we have and you begin to think, I'm loving more than others. I'm less rude than my friends. 
I'm more patient than my husband. And if we do that, our definition and expectation will be terribly off-center. See, if you're honest, if you're not careful, you'll only begin loving people when you know they're gonna love you back. You'll love people when you do the calculus and you know they're gonna, it's gonna benefit you. You'll, you'll wait to love someone until you feel like it. And then you'll excuse loveless actions because the people don't deserve it. You'll, you'll, you'll justify your inaction because how badly you've been wronged, how unfairly you've been treated, how frustrated you are, and you can find a lot of other people who will validate those excuses. And yet, when you hear how God loves you, it changes how you think about love. It changes what you are willing to do when it comes to God's love for you and you for others. So for those of you who are Christians, have you allowed the definition of love to be weakened by the absence of considering what God has done for you? Do you need to be reminded today of the extent to which that God has gone in order to reach out to you? Can I ask you, do you pray for your enemies? Do you ask God for a heart of forgiveness? Do you speak kindly to people when they are unkind to you? Do you exhibit patience with those with whom you are frustrated? Because Christian, this is not just a matter of being a good or great Christian. Demonstrating a consistent life that's marked by love is a matter of whether or not you are a real Christian. That's how I read the text. And so if you've failed in the last few weeks, feel seeds of bitterness that have risen in your heart, why not this morning take those to Christ and say, thank you for this word that reorients my mind and my heart. Help me to love so-and-so. Give me grace. Maybe even today you need grace. Believers in Jesus love because God has loved them. Here's the second thing. We are to love because God lives in us, or pointedly, you are to love because God lives in you. Verse 11, we find the second beloved statement. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So again, this is just a repetition of the other command that we heard in verse seven, but now John gives another reason. He says, no one has ever seen God. What does he mean by that? Well, essentially he means no one has ever seen God with their eyes. He's simply stating the obvious. He's helping them to understand that this, when love is demonstrated in the life of a sinful person, a person who was previously God's enemy, we see the life of God in them. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, we are able to see the life of God exhibited in a person. You may not be able to see God, but you surely see what God does, and you see it exhibited in the life of someone who loves God. So every time that you demonstrate the love of God, every time you live in a selfless, Christ-centered way, you are making evident the beautiful display of what God is like. And nowhere is this more evident than when we love one another. One of the um, reasons I think that we are fans of long anniversaries for those who have been married. It's just because how remarkable it is. This summer, 
my wife and I will celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary, and it's just hard to believe that A, we're that old, or B, that my wife has been that kind to me. Yeah. Some of you, how many of you, just raise your hand, you've been married 50 years or more, let me see your hands, raise them up. Awesome, amen, right, good. In our first service, I said 50 years of marriage, and Don and Virginia Lawson down here in the front row, she said, 65 years, and it's just, <laughs> It was awesome. She interrupted the sermon, and I let her do it. And then I used her as an illustration. And it's remarkable. 65 years. Just think of how many times John and Virginia Lawson have had to ask one another's forgiveness. How much grace has been applied to one another. How many little insecurities that have had to be overlooked? How many offenses that had to be covered in love? How many tears have been shed? The fact that two human beings can live together in harmony for 65 years is a miracle, and it displays the beauty of the gospel, which is why if you're a married person, fight for your marriage, fight for your marriage, fight for faithfulness, fight for godliness, because we need marriages that make it over the long haul, because nothing platforms the beauty of the gospel and the glory of God more than long marriages. <laughs> marriages aren't the only thing that do that. Relationships between friends where you overlook differences. Unity in a church or in relationships that cross, cross ethnic barriers where love reigns, communication styles that are concerned about others, your commitment to resolve conflicts in a way that is filled with grace. These are evidences, rare evidences of the life of God in people. You conduct yourself like this in the marketplace, people will notice. When you're around people like this, you're able to see the life of God in them. That's why John uses the word abide. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us. John's, John loves the word abide. I've said this before, that if he, was a, if he manufactured t-shirts, it would be like hashtag abide. He loves the word abide. John 15, abide in me and I in you. Abide in my love. Love demonstrates that God is abiding in us. For the followers of Jesus, it means that God's Christ, God's love in Christ is not only what has come to us, but it is that which Christ followers are to embrace. It is the tangible evidence that the life of God is present. So back to the driveway, you pull into the driveway, you have to go into a house, there's people in there that are going to be difficult to love. What gets you into the house and to act in a Christ honoring manner, what helps you to absorb things that are annoying and not to just kind of go there again, it is that you're a Christian and this is the way that you are called to follow Jesus. You're going to demonstrate the life of Christ, not necessarily be fairly treated. And what's more, your love then demonstrates that God's love is perfected in us, which means that it fits in the same way that puzzle pieces fit together or a glove fits on a hand, so love fits what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the reverse, a self-centered, me-first, careless, thoughtless, bitter person who's only concerned about themselves doesn't fit with the gospel. And so friend, if that's like what your life is like, and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, 
You're like a kid standing on the edge of a pool saying, I want to get in the water, but I don't want to get wet. You, you can't have Christ and self. As breathing is to life, so love is to Christianity. Now let me apply this to a wide range of situations and circumstances. First, obviously this applies to relationships. Christians are to be marked in their relationships with an aroma of the gospel such that our, listen, our first response is to be patient, to believe the best, to not give up quickly. That's how we love. Has your last week been marked by that? Speech. Our words are to be characterized by kindness. Our words are to be characterized by understanding, by clarity. People not wondering what we mean. And grace. We're to use words that minister grace to the hearers. It's not enough just to say, well, you didn't understand. We also have to say, perhaps I didn't communicate in the right way. When it comes to ethnicity, we need to see brothers and sisters from different ethnicities through the lens of the gospel since Christ is all and in all. So we must let our love for Christ and our unity in the gospel be the first step. Colossians 3, 11 to 12 tells us that's how we are to love. I've already talked about marriages. and Let me just speak very quickly. Husbands, you in particular are called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That is an unbelievably important command to embrace. As it relates to offenses, we should regularly overlook things that bother us. We ought not be quickly bugged or frustrated, annoyed, or allow things to hurt us too quickly. We should be slow to take offense. The kind of people that are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get irritated and angry. That's how we love. Because this is the way that God has loved us, and this is the way that God lives in us. As it relates to forgiveness, this means that love compels us to be quick to forgive, a posture that is ready to reconcile. Not harboring, not waiting, but leaning in, praying for enemies, willing to be reconciled when asked to. It's how we love. Confrontation. Love requires that we're willing to speak the truth in love. That means, by the way, that you're willing to speak not only the right way, but you're willing to speak in a candid way that is helpful for the brother or sister because you are more concerned, listen, about their growth than you are about what that person thinks of you. You're more, you're more concerned about them growing and in love for that person, you're gonna tell them what you believe they need to hear, even though if it affects your relationship. It's Ephesians 4.15. And finally, humility. Our other-centeredness in the gospel compels us to consider the needs of others as more important than our own. Love means that I consider myself less. I just think about myself less. I think about others more. That's Christ-like love. So I could, I could go on and on and on, and you absolutely should. Of all the ways that you could apply this category of the Christian life, love is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and it is vital. It's vital in our assurance 
that we're legitimately a follower of Jesus. So if this last week has been very bad, I've got news for you. There's room for you today to say, Lord, I, I was not loving last week. Why not own it, confess, repent, turn? And maybe you're here today, not yet a follower of Jesus, and this is, you've been searching for love in all the wrong places, and despite what the Beatles are saying, love is not all what you need in terms of externally, internally. The Bible says that God loves you. He sent his only son to die for you. And anyone who receives Christ can be welcomed into the family of God. This is the kind of love that we need. Listen to 1 John 4. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And so John says, if God loved us this way, then we ought to love one another. Let's pray together. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, is there someone that just comes to mind right now? A hard person to love. How hard it would be if the heart of a mom today would say it's my son or my daughter or son-in-law or daughter-in-law. Would you just, even now, mom, pray, God, give me grace to be Christ-like to this person. Maybe it's friend or a neighbor, someone with whom you have relationship, some other person that is in your world, and you know God's calling you to love them, but boy, it's tough. Would you ask God by his spirit to help you? And maybe you're here today, not yet a follower of Jesus. Is God calling you to become a Christian? Has he brought you here for the very purpose of helping you understand that Jesus died for your sins, God loves you, is there a longing within you to have a heart that's reordered the right way? Why not cry out to him today and say, Lord, I believe. Come, Jesus, take over. Whatever your position, Christian or not, talk to the Lord, even now, about why his word has been brought to bear on your heart. Oh, Father, we thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for its help to us. And pray that you, by the power of the resurrected Christ, would make us a people fit to love others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.